AWS has over 150 different services, databases, log management, edge computing, and lots of other services. Instead of being overwhelmed by all of these products, an engineering team can simplify their workflow by focusing on a small subset of AWS services, the defaults. Daniel Vassilo is the author of The Good Parts of AWS. An excerpt from the book is as follows. The cost of acquiring new information is high, and the consequence of deviating from a default choice is low, so sticking with the default will likely be the optimal choice. A default choice is any option that gives you very high confidence that it will work. Having confidence in your workflow, even if it is a simple workflow, has advantages. S3, EC2, Elastic Load Balancers, these are tools for simple web applications, and that's all you really need to build many businesses. Daniel worked at AWS for more than eight years before leaving to become an entrepreneur and an author, so he is authoritative on Amazon Web Services, and he joins the show to talk about what the good parts of AWS are and his strategy for building applications with that subset of services. If you are interested in sponsoring Software Engineering Daily, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. We're always looking for sponsors, and you can also support the show yourself by becoming a subscriber. You can go to softwaredaily.com and click subscribe. Daniel Vassilo, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jeff, for having me. You worked for AWS for more than eight years. You helped build some parts of AWS, and eventually you left Amazon, and now you've written a couple books, you've started your own company. Let's start off by talking a little bit about AWS. Tell me about your experience working at the most prominent cloud provider. Yeah, so I joined AWS in 2010, and before then, I had worked a couple of years in a small startup. I was what nowadays you'd call a full-stack developer. I sort of built web applications, dealt with databases and things like that. And I always felt like I knew how to use technology, I knew how to use a database, but I had no clue on, you know, for example, how to build a database from scratch and sort of things like that. And that's what led me to start looking at working at a place like Amazon. I was using AWS before then, so I was a fan already. So when I joined, I learned a lot. Right? Obviously, I got to see how the sausage gets made <laughs> sort of from close by. And yeah, and it's obviously, it's technology at large scale, something that I was never exposed to. It would have been highly unlikely that I would have been exposed to these kinds of things if I weren't working at a company like Amazon. I spent all my career at Amazon working in CloudWatch. So it's the monitoring, monitoring product. So it's actually quite high level in terms of, if you look at it in terms of sort of high level stack, I wasn't like working on the operating systems or close to the hardware or things like that. So still in the field that I had experience in, still basically building web apps with databases and other things. But I got to see a different perspective of dealing with technology and building technology that, uh, you know, especially in the first few years, I got to absorb a lot then, I mean, I spent eight years there, then obviously uh, the lessons and <laughs> information start to diminish a little bit, right, in everywhere else. <laughs> and sort of long story short, we can, maybe you can talk more about it. And sort of, I, I think I realized that probably a career as a full-time employee wasn't the ideal one for me. And sort of, I spent quite a few years thinking about it. 
And that's why last year I took the plunge to sort of leave. I was living off my savings for a little bit until I figured out something else to do. And um, sort of, I think this is a sort of working as a self-employed <laughs> developer. I think it's it's a better fit <laughs> for my preferences. Since leaving the company, how has your perspective on building software changed? Now that you've started to write your own software rather than having management around you, how has the process of writing software and thinking through these problems and setting directives for yourself been altered? Yeah, I think once you have a bit more skin in the game, I think you start to make decisions a bit differently, obviously. Even even things like that were sacrosanct at Amazon with regards to sometimes even testing and test coverage and things like that, that sort of there were policies and sort of implicit rules about how to do things. I think you start to be a bit more, even more pragmatic, I would say, that you start to evaluate things differently. Nevertheless, I think something to Amazon's credit, something that I really enjoyed is that when it comes to programming and building technology, lots of decisions get made very locally within the team, right? So it wasn't like the company was giving us directives on you should use this programming language, you should use this type of hardware. Most of the time, it was basically a small team, five to 10 people. I think my teams were never bigger than five people. And we used to decide within ourselves, you know, what programming languages to choose, what technology to depend on, what servers to use. What kind of testing do we need, right? So I, I think there wasn't that much of a huge gap compared to, say, a more rigid environment where you sort of get told exactly what you need to do, right? I was already sort of accustomed to having to make decisions on my own or with a small number of people, right? So, but I think, yeah, it becomes a bit more extreme. Now, nowadays, I'm paying for development costs myself. I have an, a full-time employee has been helping me for the last 10 months, which I'm paying out of pocket from my savings. Right? So it's a different perspective, what you expect out of people and out of, <laughs> out of things when you're paying literally 100% out of pocket <laughs> versus when, you know, sort of a huge trillion dollar company is funding <laughs> your development. AWS has many, many services, and the book that you wrote is AWS The Good Parts, which is suggestive that there's perhaps some extraneous stuff. Maybe it's useful for some developers, but most developers don't really need to know about these other features. And all of this different infrastructure that we have available on AWS can lead to a feeling of analysis paralysis. You get into this state of mind where you have this optimization fallacy that you described, this belief that you can get better and better infrastructure by optimizing what you're doing. Can you describe this fallacy of optimization? Yeah, I think I think what happened right, to take it uh, to look at it a bit from a more macro level. When I started using AWS more than ten years ago, like before I joined Amazon, I remember going to the AWS website right, and the products spoke to me. Right, I was fascinated that I could download the AWS. There wasn't even a console before when I started using it, download the TCLI, typed on instances or whatever it was, and I got like I could SSH to a server within like 45 seconds. And the documentation spoke to me as a developer. I think what changed recently, mostly in the last five years, is that AWS you know, started targeting a different type of customer, started going after 
speaking to CTOs of Fortune 500 companies and uh, governments and things like that, that which are very different from me. Uh, and I think what's resulted is that it resulted in these 150 or 170 different products, all with their own, you know, dozens of options, lots of different things. So I think it's very easy to be daunted by all these like seemingly infinite number of choices. And if you go look into the AdWords documentation, there's no opinionated perspective, right? I mean, you get uh, presented with this matrix of, you know, if you use S3, this matrix of storage classes, right? And I don't know how many they are. There are six with all their different quirks and features. And it's hard to decide, right? It's hard to, because they're presented, like if you want nine nines of durability, you should choose this. If you want five nines, you should choose this. But what does it really mean to me? <laughs> and again, I think the reality is that these emerged just because there was likely some huge customer that wanted this particular feature to save like a penny, per gigabyte store, right, and then it was built it. And then it made it available to everyone, and the documentation explains it as if it's a viable option for everyone. At the risk of not sounding very modest, I think I tried to make describe some of the very good products that AWS has in a way that I think describes them better than Amazon does, right? <laughs> Without sort of all the ignoring probably 90% of the options and details that very likely you wouldn't need, almost certainly in the beginning. And I think if you end up needing some of these things, you will likely realize on your, on your own, right? And then you sort of research them and sort of realize that maybe I'm spending a lot of money on storage, maybe I should switch storage class. But I, basically what I try to do in the book is ignore everything that you might have learned about AWS, look at these services as I try to describe most of the services as primitive data structures, sort of as an easier way how, how to reason about them. They have these basic concepts and primitives, and I should probably start with these default options, and I explain why. And sort of I, I think it's a better way of going to your options this way by restricting <laughs> the number of things you have to choose from. And again, like then maybe, right? If you want to specialize on something or optimize something specifically, you could always do that later. Right. And this is something you call your default heuristic, the idea that you should stick with what you know. And maybe you don't assume it's exactly the best choice, but it yeah. is a choice. And in many cases, it's going to do what you need it to do. Your book describes these default services that you can pick for websites and web services. These are the, quote, good parts. We can get into these good parts. So let's talk about first DynamoDB, which obviously we're going to need a database if we're building an application. And you're generally, by the way, talking about building web services, websites and web services. You're not talking mm -hmm. about really building machine learning or data engineering pipelines. So let's just start with DynamoDB because every application needs some kind of transactional database. Describe the use cases for DynamoDB and the areas that it's not well suited for. Yeah. So I think this is a bit of a controversial opinion. I think Amazon is doing this service. So by the way, I believe that would be a great product. I really like it, probably my second favorite service after S3. I think Amazon is doing a disservice by categorizing it as a database. And I know this sounds like, <laughs> what? <laughs> but I think I see DynamoDB as a very primitive B3 in the cloud. And I think if you expect 
things that you typically get from a DBMS out of DynamoDB, you're going to be highly disappointed. And I believe this is why, one of the reasons why it's not that popular. People tend to expect, even nowadays, even from non-relational databases, Mongo, Cassandra, and others, people tend to expect that they can throw a database, a query at a black box and get a result back. You know, maybe it's relational, maybe it's no SQL query, maybe it's, there's some restrictions, but that's typically what they imagine. And then the DBMS comes with features like backups and indices and other things. But I think DynamoDB is more similar to Redis than it is to uh, MySQL, right? You literally just have these primitive data structure, highly durable, highly available. You don't have to think about running out of disk space or sort of availability or things like that. DynamoDB does a great job to, to resolve those issues. But then you just have two very primitive operations to query data out of DynamoDB. A key value, get and put, or basically a list, which is they call, it's called the query API, which is basically just a list of sorted keys. In fact, I would say that DynamoDB and S3 are, uh, are significantly close in terms of technologies. They both actually support a put and get uh, operation. S3 also has a list API, which sends you a, a, a sorted list of keys, which you can basically mimic the DynamoDB query API. And there are some differences on the edges. Obviously, DynamoDB has, for example, secondary indices, which, which S3 doesn't have. S3 allows you to put an object as a public, uh, with a public uh, access, so DynamoDB doesn't. DynamoDB has point-in-time backups. S3 has versioning, which are sort of somewhat related. But fundamentally, they're both, in my opinion, just basic data structures with very primitive operations. They're both highly durable, highly available, and highly scalable. And I think developers in particular are better off if they think of, about these technologies like that, rather than this is a MySQL or Postgres replacement, right? And that's why I think, like, I, I believe that if DynamoDB was put into the storage category under S3 with just some, because, I think mostly what the way they differ is pretty much in terms of cost and performance. You know, behind the scenes, S3 is running on spinning disk, which results into very low cost per gigabyte. They're going to be on SSD, so very high, very fast, but more expensive, right? So that's what ends up being the two characteristics that differentiates them most. Apart from some of the features on the edges, as we talked about before, like secondary indices are nice and some other things. But yeah, I think that's probably my most controversial point of view about DynamoDB, right? That is probably uh, best seen as something radically more simpler. And I think if you think about it that way, then I think Amazon is mostly doing a marketing, it has a marketing problem, right? It's positioning DynamoDB as a database. And whenever I see DynamoDB discussed on Hacker News on Reddit, it's always people like complaining that they expect this, but doesn't have this, right? And it's a pity <laughs> because it's really an incredible service if you look at it as a much simpler proposition. Those things that the hacker news people complain about, it's mostly around just the ability to query it like a relational database and get some big specific select statement, right? 
I think it's the general idea that with nearly every piece of technology that calls itself a database, you throw a query, regardless of how complex it is, and you wait some time, and this black box returns you back the answer. DynamoDB doesn't work that way. If you want to do a simple aggregation, I want to I have an order stable, and I want to sum the number of orders by date. DynamoDB doesn't know how to do that. So that's, uh, you can get the list of orders, you can pull it down in your application, but then you have to aggregate it yourself. Right, so that's one of the most fundamental differences right, that I think puts people off when they realize, oh, I have to do all this work on my side. Which, by the way, has performance implications as well. I talk about it in the book, right? When you're making most of the queries application side or some of the queries, you have to consider, like, you might be pulling tons of data, right? I mean, over the network, you have to sort of uh, process them locally um, on your side. So uh, there's a performance aspect, not just an, a convenience aspect. But I think that's one of the most challenging issues if you try to put it alongside Mongo and Cassandra and obviously the relational databases, right, where there's just this big black box, this big complex thing, and you just throw something, just works its magic, <laughs> and returns back the results. Can you just go a little bit deeper on why architecturally DynamoDB is not well-equipped to fulfill the same semantics of a SQL database? Oh, it was built designed to be this way. I don't know if you know that, but sort of, do you remember SimpleDB? It used to be uh, the predecessor of DynamoDB back in, I think it was launched probably in 2009. And it it was significantly more ambitious than DynamoDB. It was meant to be throwing a query. It was non-relational. It was more like, you know, like Mongo, document-based. You, you, you insert documents and then you throw a query and it sends you the answer. And this is actually, it is probably one of the few I can't think of anything, any, any other service. One of the few duplicated services from AWS. It's technically still supported if you're still running it. Uh, if you're still using SimpleDB, the API still work. But basically, Amazon just hid it under the carpet. So that you, you don't find any <laughs> anywhere. You won't find it in the console. It's not, it's not in new regions and things like that. And the problem was that Amazon found it super hard to make this type of database scale and to have predictable performance guarantees. One of the biggest problems that was happening that with SimpleDB, you might throw in some complex query, you might not have an index about it, and the, the query would take you know two minutes, it would time out randomly. It was completely unpredictable. Some queries take 200 milliseconds, some will take minutes, and it was very hard on the service side, right, to reason about queries, right, how to allocate resources, how to reason about capacity. So DynamoDB was the answer to that, and it was a radically different perspective, right, completely predictable versus completely unpredictable. So there's two operations, get and put, they're literally going to a B3 index behind the scenes and updating a single item, very predictable, they all take you know, just a few single digit milliseconds to read and write typically. And there's this query API, which again, just goes to the starting point of a B3, reads a sequence of records up to a megabyte. So again, it's like the, the, the upper bound predicts how much expensive the query can be and returns the result. And that's it. If you want to, to continue to paginate, you, you go with the you pass the next token and you read another one megabyte, right? So it became very easy for the service provider, right, to reason about how expensive a query can be, how fast it can be, how to allocate resources. 
and it became hugely success, successful within Amazon itself right? because I remember we used to run services on top of the relational database and we used to have the same problems, right? Sometimes the relational database, it might, you know, it's a complex machine. It might start choosing, it, it might start to use a suboptimal query and suddenly your query that used to take a second is now taking 20 seconds and it's suddenly using all the memory. When we started thinking in terms of much more primitive technology like that, things become easier to reason about it. As long as you managed to model your queries and what you needed to do to its limitations, right? But then the days where you're fighting your database because it's suddenly spiking to 100% CPU and everything is slowing down disappear, right? So that <laughs> that element of predictability is highly, highly valuable. So yeah, there were different, it was designed to be this way, right? This wasn't, designed to be throwing a query of arbitrary complexity and will give you the answer. What do people do when they have built their infrastructure around DynamoDB and it's not fulfilling the requirements that they have? I think you will struggle. The limitations end up surprising you. I, I think th th this problem ends up becoming being discovered very early in development like, for example, if you're expecting to be doing lots of aggregations on huge amounts of data, during development, you're going to realize that you're going to be downloading everything out of Dynamo and doing it locally. So hopefully you realize early that this is worth considering or reconsidering, that whether you should use another type of database or the relational database or something else. I don't have any first-hand experience, for example, where the limitations and ended up sort of surprising you later, which is, I think is a good thing. Again, like the fact that it's significantly restrictive help you, it's very hard to sort of abuse it, right? And sort of, or expect more out of it. You realize, <laughs> you realize immediately that this, these are the limits, um, which again, I, th I think t these tend to be sometimes a trap in more sophisticated databases, right? Because during development, your query just returns in like 100 milliseconds. And then once you have lots of data or things are running hotter, they start to become more unpredictable, right? Dynamo just eliminates that issue. Just, just there's no unpredictability. It's actually incredibly predictable <laughs> at the cost of the constraints uh, that it comes with. You write in some detail about S3. And S3, I think of for obvious use cases as a slow file system, it's blob storage, it's static website hosting, it's a data lake. Tell me about the other applications of S3. Yes, yes. I think one of the least appreciated values of S3 is that you can think of S3 as having infinite bandwidth for all p practical purposes. Right? So if you have a terabyte of data, you could basically, in S3, you could download it as fast as you as you want, right? You can basically throw as many threads as you want at it, many servers as you want at it. You can chunk it up in pieces and just download that terabyte like in a second. For example, one of my biggest projects at Amazon was launching and working on CloudWatch Logs Insights, which is basically a monitoring tool that allows you to run arbitrary complex queries against your log data and pretty much entirely built on top of S3. And this is it surprises people because this, unlike DynamoDB, we actually chose to support, give me an arbitrary query of any complexity, including regular expressions and things that are uh, super costly to evaluate. And we'll return you the results. 
and we built it literally on top of S3 and uh, in, a, in a very cost-effective way because we relied on the assumption that, for example, log data tends to be tends to be very big in general, right? especially in our days, like applications tend to generate like gigabytes and terabytes of logs. You want to store them somewhere where it's cheap and S3 is the perfect place for that, right? And you tend to query infrequently, right? When there's a problem or you want to analyze something about your application. And I think one of the ideas that works really well with S3 is this, this technique where you separate compute from the data, right? So basically once there's no query running, there's no compute running, right? So basically you can just have the data sitting in S3 there, you're just paying the three cents a gigabyte per month and there's no other costs. And if you open up the console in CalvertSox Insights and you do a query, it will spin up some EC2 instances. Well, I mean, behind the scenes, we have like some pool of warm instances lying around, but fundamentally, you can think about it as like spin up some ephemeral instances and we enough such that we can download data from S3 as fast as we really wanted to. And then you can just sort of just churn over the data very quickly, right? just because S3 can literally saturate your network if you're able to keep up with it, right? On every instance that you, <laughs> that you allocate. And I don't see, like Amazon internally is doing this a lot, right? this idea of separating compute and storage, even data, even technologies like Aurora, which is Amazon's relational database product. But I don't see it too much outside of Amazon, right? And S3 really enables this, just because you can have just data sitting around with basically a huge pipe, an infinite pipe. I think for, you can think of it like that, where whenever you want, you can just start pulling <laughs> out of it and doing intensive workloads for a short period of time, which even though they might be expensive for the short period of time, the fact that you run uh, for just a few seconds or a few minutes end up being very cost effective in terms of churning to data in particular. There are some different storage classes in S3. Tell me about how a developer should consider choosing between different storage classes. Yeah, personally, I think uh, I would just go with the default one. Uh, it's the easiest one to reason about. Uh, I think the, all the others are just optimizations for very special cases. And I think, as we talked about earlier, you're very likely going to, if you realize that you have a huge S3 build, right, that it's a significant part of your spend, then it might be a good time to start looking at all the other options. And again, like these are not these are reversible decisions, right? So I think it's easier to just go with the tried and tested classes, the ones that have passed the test of time, the ones that are easier to reason about uh, their implications, uh, rather than try to prematurely optimize for something. A again, like unless it's immediately obvious, for example, that you're just going to be storing data and never reading it, right? Just because you're keeping it for regularity reasons, right? Then maybe some of the niche storage classes like, you know, Glacier and like these super low cost ones might make sense to use immediately. But if you're expecting to be doing read and writes with some unpredictability, you don't really know exactly how you're going to be reading or how much or how frequently, I just default to this to the default storage class appropriately named. <laughs> so you also write about EC2. Everyone knows EC2. It's the classic server option. There are compute options other than EC2. You could spin up a Fargate container or you could build your application around Lambda functions. 
is EC2 still the sane default of server infrastructure? I think for most workloads, yes. The, the, my problem, so my problem with Fargate and ECS and the related services is that I still see them as somewhat immature offerings. They started as Amazon mostly reacting, you know, to, to the changes in the in the in the industry, right, where Docker and containers started to become popular. And in my opinion, just to do something out very quickly to sort of try to have a solution and a story for that demand. And uh, like, I have to admit, first of all, right, that I've never used personally first-hand experience with Fargate and DCS, but from my sort of second-hand experience talking with people, others that use it, I think, I, I think you run into the risk of running into too many limitations and restrictions for basic things like how you do deployments and how you do things just because it's something very new, hasn't really passed the test of time, right? And unlike EC2, right, which was built very differently, Amazon built it for itself. I mean, internally, it had a similar solution. And more recently, Amazon has been starting using EC2 internally very aggressively. It's used by like you know millions of customers outside of the company, huge customers, like it definitely... Uh, past the test of maturity, <laughs> in my opinion. And I think what I like about EC2 in particular is that yeah, it's just it's, it's freedom, right? It's just I can do whatever I want with it without sort of being constrained by some other concepts and uh, restrictions that the platform has imposed on it. Lambda is different, I think. I think it's even more concerning right, to default to building your application around Lambda, in my opinion. Right? I, I still believe that Lambda is great for if you have a piece of code and you want to run it in the cloud. I see Lambda as just a code runner in the cloud. Right? It's, it's not a computer in the cloud. right? And uh, I'm very optimistic about a future where the operating system and the server get abstracted away. But I don't think Lambda is there yet for general purpose applications. Again, like I think if you try to build something on top of Lambda, you're going to have to go to lots of gymnastics to you know, break up your application into functions. And then I think you will very likely end up being surprised. Unlike what we talked about DynamoDB earlier, very likely end up being surprised later in the development process, where you realize you might want to install you know, a, a log agent on your host, but you can't really do it, or it's super hard to do it, or you want to use WebSockets, and even though Lambda supports them, they, they're not stateful, so you're going to have to touch DynamoDB, and it's going to cost you, you know, an insane amount of money. So there's lots of traps and pitfalls and problems, I think, in my opinion, if you try to do something very sophisticated on top of Lambda. Lots of people disagree with this position, right? And um, uh, I'll admit, right? But that's why, that's why I, I like to think in terms of just defaults, right? It's just, if I want to host something in the cloud, I would just default to use EC2, right? If, it's, if, the, if I have a Ruby on this application running on my laptop, I can get it running on EC2 very easily. It's pretty much the same environment. Uh, if you try to get it to run on Lambda, it's almost impossible. Right? You're just going to have to break it up <laughs> into an insane <laughs> way. Firegate and ECS are a bit different. Obviously, they're not. I think if you, if 
if you have something already running on Docker or Kubernetes or something else, I, I think they're worth a look. I would still advise caution with regards to limitations and hidden hidden issues that, that might not have been exposed just because I believe they're not that widely used, right? Even I'm sure there are customers, obviously, right? But it's not it's in a different category than EC2, where almost any issue has been sort of <laughs> discovered and fixed and addressed. As far as security, what do I need to know about securing EC2? There are two concepts uh, which I think are very important to understand the concept of security group and the concept of the VPC rules, which I think you can think about them as the security group is like a firewall for your instance, literally tied to what gets in and out on the machine. And the VPC is around the network. So you have a group of instances, you have another firewall around the network boundary. And I think from a network security perspective, at least, you know, you can start with just everything locked down and then, you know, you just go to the usual process of just opening up what you really want, uh, maybe just a port to the load balancer and then the load balancer f uh, faces the internet and things like that. With regards to keeping the instance and the operating system patched and secure, this is typically one of the concerns people tend to have. And, but I think it's also, it's not as problematic as many people think that i mean it's it's definitely a burden and something under your responsibility but it's literally just a matter of and something you could automate a matter of just you know just doing yum installs security or whatever it is on your operating system and rebooting your instance periodically which I don't know if it's a secret, but this is pretty much what Amazon does behind the scenes for <laughs> for uh, all the other services. Right? There's not no no nothing magical. I think there's a new feature. I haven't played with it yet. I think it's a new feature in auto scaling, I believe, or maybe it's native built in in EC2 that allows you nowadays to just reboot your instance on a periodic basis. And I think you know if you're running a fleet of instances, this might be just a very reasonable way of just keeping your operating systems patched by just do, doing a rolling operating system update and restart on like a weekly basis, right? And with a sort of a bit, some basic monitoring uh, to make sure that everything comes up back uh, as you expect. Uh, I think it can pretty much cover you in terms of security. With EC2, there are all of these varieties of tiers. You have CPU and memory and storage and network options at different tiers, pricing tiers. My guess is that it's going to be more of a discussion than the S3 storage classes. There's more to discuss around this subject. Can you tell me about suggestions for getting started <laughs> with picking yeah. EC2 tiers? To be honest, I think, again, it's probably even easier to move to a different instance type than to move from an S3 storage class, right? Because... I mean, if you have a petabyte of data stored in S3 in one class and you want to move the class, you might have to pull it all down and upload it. Again, it will take time and probably be expensive. But with EC2, it's just a matter of most of the time running your CloudFormation template, right? And in a couple of minutes, you might change your instance type. So I think it's an even more easily reversible decision. I think, again, like, and even when I worked at Amazon, typically we didn't used to overthink the instance type a lot, obviously, 
if you're doing something very specific like relying on instance storage or the disk the disks attached to the instances there are obviously some some instance types that have those available or some that have bigger disks and things like that but i think for most use cases where you're just running web applications where the storage is either in s3 or in a database uh, I would just default to the M and C categories, right, which is the compute optimized and the memory optimized, which are probably the most general purpose ones. They have slightly different ratios of CPU and memory. They're both roughly the same cost. And and yeah, I would just wouldn't overthink it. I would I would err on if I'm doing it if I have a distributed application, I would err on or I would be inclined to choose small multiple smaller instances rather than bigger instances. I think you just get uh, somewhat better availability and you just uh, it's easier to deal with instance, instances that way. But yeah, I think instance types are very easy to change, right? So unless it's immediately obvious what you should be choosing in the beginning, just choose what seems <laughs> good enough and start with that. Revisiting Lambda. You touched on this a little bit earlier, but I'd like to know more about what your perspective is on how to use Lambda maybe more broadly, what a fully serverless application would look like today. I've talked to some people who are pretty excited about building fully serverless applications. I talked to a company called Courier recently. It's a fairly new application for doing optimization of sending text messages and private messages to customers, email messages to customers. It's a very infrastructure-heavy product, but they've built it entirely out of AWS Lambda functions and triggers, and they're all in on AWS to steal the AWS marketing jargon. They're really happy with AWS, and I'd like you to tell me more about the fully serverless application stack and how that contrasts with the default heuristic, the simple default heuristic that you've been advocating. So in my experience, what ends up happening is that the benefits that you thought you were getting by not by having the operating system abstracted away and the security updates and the servers... The, the limitations and the, the other issues end up outweighing those benefits, right? Uh, to put it sort of in, in those terms. And um, what I've seen happening, and again, it, I think it depends on how much, and I, probably the main reason why people say they love <laughs> serverless is probably they find dealing with servers and operating systems super daunting, right? So it's like they're nearly can't imagine themselves having to configure a security group or configure the VPC or update the operating system uh, and things like that. Right? So there, I've seen discussions and conversations where sometimes people don't even consider that an option just because I'm not a DevOps person right? or I'm not a systems engineer, so that's, I can't even think about dealing with it. So uh, then they tend to gravitate towards Lambda because it promises to uh, eliminate those concerns. But I think what you end up fighting with end up being things like in limitations like the fact that the function can only run for 15 minutes. If you're doing anything stateful, it's a challenge. If you want to install something, you know, you, you want monitoring software, you want to install Datadog or something, right? It's just, how do I do it? You, I mean, there are ways of doing it, right? but it's complicated. You have to install a Kinesis stream and create CloudWatch logs and pipe it to Kinesis and then send it to somewhere else, right? And and that's just from the infrastructure side. You end up with with lots of little pieces, not to mention the uh, software side as well, which I think 
leads to sort of this extreme microservices, micro, you know, function level breakdown, which in my opinion hurts our software architecture significantly. I'm still a bit old school in terms of preferring the Ruby on Rails-like web applications, the monolith, the thing that has a single binary or a single entry point. I, I can run it on my laptop with a single command and 100% of the functionality runs from a single place. I love that concept. I love that I can open the debugger and walk to a whole request without having to jump to different processes or that I have to start, I, that I don't have to start five different demons for my application to be doing everything. And I think if you try to build something on top of Lambda, you're going to be forced to break things up into something that is even more extreme than the typical microservices where you might just be breaking it up by functionality or by, you know, by the team that owns it or something like that. You end up breaking it up by every different request type right, or every different tiny bit of activity. Which, from the examples that I've seen, they've all, in my opinion, I never really looked at the code architecture or the infrastructure, and I envied it, that I said, I wish <laughs> my software was like that, right, or my infrastructure was like that. Definitely, there's a matter of preference here, right, but I just prefer the, the traditional way, right, the way it's been done for a long time where my application runs from a single binary or from a single place. If I want to distribute it, I just run multiple versions on it and then put, load, put a load balancer in front of it. And uh, it's super easy to reason about, about it, right? Even deployments, you know, one of, the, one of the other problems with breaking things up is it sometimes complicates deployments as well, unless you sort of create some very strict protocols, you might sort of have a function running version five and another function running version four, and they're uh, touching a state that is in common, uh, which uh, I, there are frameworks that facilitate all these things to make sure you're doing the right things. But I think you end up still fighting all the time. And I think one funny thing, I was just thinking about it recently, if you go to Reddit or AWS, <laughs> I think probably 50% of the questions are, how do I do this basic thing on Lambda, right? It's like, I think it's an indicator of how confusing it is to, for people to just run very basic web applications and website things on a platform like Lambda. And again, like they're talking like, how do I con communicate with them with, with RDS? How do I keep the connection pools open, right? And not run out of connections, basic things, right? And how do I keep a cache or how do I send things to a third party service without having to send them on every Lambda invocation. Then, apart from that, there are also limits of the platform, which will likely get fixed in the future, but the fact that your code bundle can't exceed, I don't remember what the size is, but uh, can't exceed some certain number of megabytes or gigabytes, right? So, which, which are less problematic, but even those things end up being another headache <laughs> that you end up having to deal with. Uh, like, for example, one of, I think what a use case where Lambda works well and we tried to, when I was at Amazon, we tried to use it this way. It was, for example, to run integration tests during a deployment pipeline, right? just before NDCD pipeline. And we were quite happy with it. So they start on demand, they run a bunch of tests against a piece of software that we had. But yeah, then suddenly our test, because it was written in Java, and Java brings in the whole, <laughs> uh, I don't know, like gigabytes and gigabytes of dependencies. One fine day, like we, could, we just couldn't deploy the tests anymore just because uh, we ex exceeded this arbitrary small, I think it was 
250 megabytes or something like that limit of the bundle size, right? And you know, st suddenly we're stuck <laughs> for you know for for a few weeks until we figured out a way how to sort of uh, remove some dependencies and reduce the bundle size. It's just a just a a significant cost <laughs> when you think about that we could have been running this on EC2 and not have to worry about things like that. ELBs are the load balancing infrastructure on AWS, elastic load balancers. Tell me about the aspects of load balancing on AWS that I might not be aware of. Yeah. So I think probably one of the things that many people don't know, I mean, there are two now, there are two modern ELB types. There's a classic one, which even Amazon doesn't recommend using anymore. So there's the application load balancer and network load balancer. I think the way that they're documented on, on the Amazon products pages makes it look like the network load balancer is something very niche and you only use it, if, only need it if you want extreme high performance or something large scale and things like that. But actually, I think I would likely default to the network load balancer in general. Uh, and probably one of the reasons is that the way they work is that an application load balancer, you can think of it as behind the scenes, there's, there's an instance somewhere that's doing load balancing work for you. And uh, uh, as your, there's a monitor that's tracking your number of requests coming, coming through. And as your requests fluctuate and increase, AWS will put more load balancer instances. It will basically auto scale up or down. And this sometimes tends to create problems at scale or when there's a big change in demand, just because the auto-scaling might not uh, adjust quickly enough, right? And in fact, Amazon recommends that if you, if you know that you're going to have a peak uh, spike of traffic to inform them beforehand, cut a ticket, and they will warm it up for you. That's the, that's the term that they use, like, which basically is that they set a minimum number of instances. And... The problem is that these limits are not documented. Nobody knows what whether it's a hundred requests a second or it's a thousand or if it's a million. <laughs> so there's always this thing in your head like, is my thing going to get popular when I'm launching and suddenly everything is going to start returning a 503 error just because the load balancer hasn't scaled. And this is only a problem with the application load balancers. The network load balancers don't work this way. They're basically just a big multi-tenant Router. If you, I think that's the way I like to think about it. Like that, pretty much every AWS customer is using the same thing, and there's no single capacity dedicated to you. Right, the only way you could you could exhaust the NLB if you like use all of Amazon's capacity, right? which would be a hard thing to do. So, despite the NLBs have fewer features, like NLBs work on a lower level at the network packet level. So they don't really have fancy features like request level routing on the URL part and things like that. Or for example, on the NLBs, you can even attach Lambda functions to them and serve some parts from a Lambda function and uh, some, some very interesting features. NLBs are super primitive. They just route requests and load balance them from the internet to your instances. They support TLS termination on their side, which is super fascinating that they managed to do it at the level four level. Um, it's quite an interesting piece of magic, but it works really well. So you can just, if all you need is just to route HTTPS requests from the internet to your instances, 
I would recommend defaulting to NLB unless you really need some of the uh, unique features of the application load balancers, just because it eliminates that burden of scaling and capacity from your responsibility. Let's talk a little bit about infrastructure as code. Infrastructure as code in AWS world is generally talking about cloud formation. I'd love to get your perspective on cloud formation relative to other tools, such as Terraform. What is the use case for cloud formation? How does it contrast with Terraform? Yeah, so in my opinion, they're both relatively equivalent. I think I would choose, again, like which one you would be more, more comfortable with if you have all that. Like I tend to default on CloudFormation mostly because I've used CloudFormation a lot. It's the devil that I know. I know it's quirks and it's sort of issues. I use Terraform a little bit. I know it less. And basically I base my, like if I were to choose something, if I were to do something new, I would likely choose CloudFormation just because of the familiarity. And from my perspective, the differences are not that significant. That warrants a strict recommendation for one of the or the other. I would definitely encourage using either one of the other. I wouldn't recommend in production unless you're doing a demo, a demo or some a toy project or whatever to do anything without infrastructure as code. But yeah, I don't really have strong opinions on the two different pieces of software. Okay, well, just getting a little more context on what you're doing now. So you've left AWS. You wrote AWS The Good Parts. You also run a company which is called UserBase. Explain what your company UserBase does. Yeah, so UserBase is a very, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a service that allows web developers to add user logins and data persistence without having to deal with any backend code, any Lambda functions, any, any compute whatsoever. Uh, so basically, just a very basic JavaScript SDK that can be run in the browser that has basically create user, login, logout, insert item, delete item in a database, and some basic database CRUD operations. It's similar to uh, Firebase from Google uh, and Amplify a little bit from AWS. One of the key differences that user base has that all user data is end-to-end -end encrypted. So basically when, they, when an, the end user creates an account, uh, a key gets created that never gets sent to the service. Well, actually, uh, the key gets encrypted with uh, with the user's password and gets backed up on the service. Right? But sort of the combination of the password and the key never get the, the server never receives that. And I think sort of this opens up uh, some interesting use cases where either for privacy focused applications, that right, where the web where the website owner doesn't even want to see the user data. The user data becomes a liability, right? And there's general security benefits as well. Right? It's significantly harder to misuse or misplace or leak out user data if it's all encrypted with keys that uh, never leave the servers. So it's focused, yeah, it's focused on simplicity and uh, ease of use with this unique feature that uh, none of the other vendors have. Uh, it's still very new, right? I mean, user base got, we, I started working on it approximately almost a year ago, like 11 months ago. I launched launched the first version about three months ago, and we're still building sort of features on it. So we still don't have file storage, for example, just database storage or data sharing between users. It's something that we're, we're about to release. 
we just uh, we just released an interesting feature where you can connect your user base account with Stripe, and if you want to sort of uh, build a paid web app, we tied in the payment feature with the authentication part, right? So you could uh, configure your app such that it allows your users to log into your app for, for example, for seven days for free, but after seven days, they will be prompted to pay for access. And if they pay, money go, you know, the, the subscription money goes to your Stripe account. And UserBase facilitates all of that without, again, without citing any webhook handlers, any code on the backend. You literally just connect your accounts with Stripe, just a couple of clicks from the console. Uh, you, you, you define your payment plan and, and that's it, right? So it's, uh, I, I, I like the space, right? It's something that I like building products for other developers. It's, some, it's sort of something that I, uh, I, I really enjoy doing at Amazon and I sort of still enjoy it, right? So it's a space that, that I like. And um, so I chose this just to focus on this product first just because I think it matches my skills. As we said, like it matches that I like building tools for developers. I also have some ideas myself on building web apps eventually that might benefit from from user base itself. So it's sort of it's part of the strategy that that uh, <laughs> I could be my own customer as well. So yeah, that's one one part. I've also been very active, like pretty much when I left Amazon, I was pretty much unknown to the world. Right? <laughs> I had never which was quite shocking when I realized that <laughs> that if I did something and I released this, probably nobody would hear about it. <laughs> so I intentionally had started trying to build an audience and I settled on Twitter. I've mostly been documenting my journey, all these decisions, like, for example, user base, pretty much I brainstormed it in public on Twitter. I tweeted about it. It evolved a little bit from feedback from, from, from people that responded. And... As you mentioned, in the meantime, mostly as, a, as an experiment, I did a couple of information products. We call them, right? One of them is the AWS book, which I released about four and a half months ago at the end of 2019. And, and again, like it's, it's something that I had never done before. I really thought it might be interesting to see if, if, if it was viable, right? To create something like basically to sell a PDF of some knowledge <laughs> that I had, right? It's how I saw it, like a brain dump of some things that I knew they might be interested. And I had no clue whether this was viable from a financial perspective, whether this would sell $100 or $1,000 or <laughs> or more. It turned out to be super, exceeded my expectations. Like the AWS book sold, I think it exceeded $90,000 in four and a half months, which basically I marketed pretty much exclusively all on Twitter organically. Just recently, I started doing some paid ads on Reddit, but only the only like about three or four percent of my sales. So yeah, I mean, I've I've taken a self-employment path. Like I didn't really go build my company Silicon Valley style, where I had like this grand idea, and I decided to make it work at all costs. It started pretty much the other way around, where I sat down here, <laughs> I tried to think. What could I do? What could I sell? What could I maintain? And I tried to sort of work backwards from that. Like, what do I enjoy doing? Right? Because obviously, uh, I there's not some business that I intend to just build and then exit out of. That's something that I hope to keep doing. And the information products, like the book, and I released recently another course on building a Twitter audience, like focused for on developers and, and people like me. 
these were just experiments to just supplement my income. Um, I mean, user base is still very early. Still, I mean, we have 68 paid customers. It's just not not significant enough to pay my bills. It's doing, you know, a few thousand dollars in annual revenue. And uh, I'm willing to give it time. I, I mean, I saved enough money from my, from my work at Amazon to afford to give it, you know, five years to become a reasonable business. And that's my target that I could live off it eventually. But I understand that it will likely take time because it's just the timing of the business. Like people need to build a web app, need to be ready, right? It just need, needs to fit the expectations. So these info products are just supplementing my income. They, they, I'm super happy that they're working out and I enjoy doing them. I've done two so far. I might do something else later this year. I was also doing a bit of freelancing a little bit on the side with a friend of mine. Uh, so I was sort of mixing those three things, <laughs> SaaS business, info products, and trading time for money. I stopped freelancing now, now that sort of the, the info products are doing well. But that's been sort of a little bit my journey. I just trying to <laughs> figure out how to make a living on my own. <laughs> awesome. Well, Daniel, thank you for coming on the show. It's been really great talking to you, and I enjoyed reading your book. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thank you.